Good morning, everyone. Uh, most of you may know me, Jonathan Gentry here, as J.D. said earlier. Uh, I have the privilege of serving here as one of our members and as a chaplain over at Camp Lejeune. So uh, you, you may have seen me before here. Um, today, we're going to look at John chapter 17, as J.D. said, uh, and that's where we're going to be. So go ahead if you want to turn there as we start off. So road trips, right, they can be a lot of emotions, right? Excitement, joy, maybe fear, terror, depending on your view of a road trip, right? Bring a lot of stress. They also might bring a lot of questions, right? What time are we leaving? When is lunch? Here's one for you if you've traveled down the interstate here. Why is there a giant sombrero in the sky on the side of the interstate, right? So you'll get that if you've gone into South Carolina. But here's one that will actually evoke all of the emotions mentioned above. Are we there yet, right? We've all gotten that, right? And kids are public enemy number one when it comes to this particular question. And the best part is this question is most likely asked at least 100 times and as soon as you pull out of the driveway. We've all asked it, right? Uh, and after hours of being asked this, what a relief it is to finally answer, yes, we are here. And as we've been on this journey in the book of John, that this sounds like a question that we need to ask, right? Are we there yet? What is this gospel building to? What is John trying to tell us? Well, in our passage today in John chapter 17, we're going to read the whole chapter, 1 through 26, we are going to see this question answered by Jesus. And his reply is simply, the hour has come. If you have one of the Bibles that are underneath your seats, it's on page 849. If you're not already there, give you a little help there. And then today, we're going to see Jesus offer this prayer. Maybe your Bible says the, the high priestly prayer, and that's exactly what it is. And Jesus' prayer showed the disciples how to honor and glorify God through consistent obedience to the Father's will. And it's similar for us. We're going to see today that as Christians, we're called to do this as well, to show honor and glory to God through prayer and consistent obedience to God's will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive in. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. Lord, we just pray that as we read this passage, Lord, as the psalmist prayed, that you would open our eyes so that we may behold wonderful things from your law. We just ask this in the most holy and precious name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we, we've been walking through the, this book of John for quite a while now. The last few weeks we've been in this thing called the Farewell Discourse. And Kind of this part of it will wrap what we know that to be. And Jesus has been talking and he's sharing things with the disciples there, right? They're still in the upper room in this moment. And he ends with this, this time in prayer before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus prays in three different ways. First, we see that Jesus prays for his glory to be revealed to glorify the Father. Let's say that again. Jesus prays for his glory to be revealed to glorify the Father. Let's look at the first five verses. It starts in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him, all authority, or given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? We see here that Jesus starts this next section off right with a prayer. And he addresses, of course, God the Father. We know that to be an intimate term that he's going to use to understand the, the fellowship that he has with God the Father. And then he says this. All right, this is, of course, where I get my sermon title, The Hour Has Come. Or if you've been with us at all in this passage or in this series of John, we know that he's been saying a lot of things. We've used this phrase before, the hour has come, the hour has come. So everything has been leading up to this moment, this time. But remember, he had also been saying, it's not yet my hour. Remember John chapter 2, verse 4, he said, talking to his mother, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But now we see a switch, right? We see this in chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then John chapter 13, verse 1. I I preached this passage the last time I spoke. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So what is this hour? If, if John has kind of hit on that multiple times in his gospel, what's that about? Where does it come from? All right, so everybody hold your place there in John chapter 17, if you have a marker. And let's go all the way back to Genesis. You're probably, whoa, wait a minute, why are you going to this? Well, there's a reason. Go to Genesis chapter 3. And as, as some of you know, right, especially if you're in our community group that we, we lead at our house, we've been walking through this passage and this story, and we've constantly gone back to this particular passage. Right? In John, or Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall. Right? Adam and Eve sin against God. They, they utterly rebel against him and eat from the tree that they were told not to. Of course, God comes to them in the garden, and we see in Verse 15, that God is actually speaking to the serpent here, not Adam and Eve. Listen to what he says in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right, so why are you bringing us to this passage, you might ask? Well, we need to understand that this passage is quintessential to understanding this entire book. If we lose sight of what Genesis 3.15 is, we're going to miss the whole story of the Bible. So what does this mean? Well, enmity, it may say hostility or, or some other word there for you. So what God is saying to the serpent here in this moment, he says, hey, even though you tempted them, Adam and Eve chose willfully to sin, right? There's an answer. So even in the garden, God had a plan of redemption. God had a plan of rescue, right? Sometimes we call this the first gospel because we see that God was going to send an offspring or the seed to bring about this redemption. You're probably like, how are you getting that? Well, look at the last part of the verse. He says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations may say he will crush your head or strike your heel. What does that mean? Think about it, right? God is saying to the serpent here in this moment, hey, I'm going to send someone one day who is going to crush your head. I know we have some people, I'm the chaplain for 2nd Medical Battalion here on base, and so I know we maybe have some corpsmen or different people that are doctors or people in the medical health care field, right? Uh, An injury to the head is typically more serious than an injury to the foot, right? Typically, you may, especially if it's a serious injury, 
you might pass away very quickly with a head injury versus being an, a foot injury. So what we see here is God saying, hey, one day there's going to be someone who crushes your head, Satan. He is going to give you the death blow. Although you may strike his heel, you may cause him pain, i.e. the cross, he will defeat you. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. So go ahead and flip back to, to John 17. This is the hour that we're talking about, right? This is right before Jesus goes to the garden. He's going to be arrested, betrayed by Judas, which we'll talk about here in a bit. Right? God has a plan and a purpose for what's going on right now. And so all the way from Genesis 3 to, to all the way up to now, God is building this story of redemption to lead to this moment where Jesus is going to head towards the cross. So when we think about that, this is the hour that Jesus is talking about. I love how one pastor captured this. He said, The unfolding drama of redemptive history had reached its apex. Plans made in eternity past were finding their culmination in time. The hour had come in which the Son of Man would offer himself as the perfect and only atoning sacrifice. The hour had come when the sinless one would be made sin for believers that they might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the hour that Jesus is talking about. This is what he has come for. Look at verse 2. He also says, to give eternal life to him all you have given. Or sorry, the end of verse 1. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Well, what is he getting at here, right? Just like I said in my first point, he wants to be glorified ultimately so that he can give glory to the Father. Right? And glorify literally means to cause to have splendid greatness, right? I think we can understand that, especially as we understand the passage J.D. read for us at the beginning. And so Jesus' whole mission was about bringing glory to God. And listen to what he said in John thirteen thirty one, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. But at the end of the day, Jesus was all about bringing glory back to God the Father. And he even says that in, chapter, in verse 2, that he has been given the authority to give eternal life. So Jesus has been given the authority from God over all people and all creation. And he has the power to give eternal life. In John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? And Jesus makes sure that the disciples knew in this particular moment, yes, that not everyone will have eternal life. Only those who God has given to him. And you may ask, okay, well, what is eternal life? Well, glad you asked. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So Jesus clearly gives us the definition of what eternal life is. We don't have to wonder, well, what is, what is it? Right? Sometimes we think about it, it's like, oh, it's, it's this time we spend in heaven when we die. You know, we're on, whether it's the cartoon version of clouds and harps and all these things, right? Well, no, we know that definition falls well short of what Jesus says eternal life is. Look at it. It says that eternal life is knowing the one true God in Jesus, the one God sent. It's having a personal relationship with God. Think about it this way, right? We've we probably said it, or maybe a friend has said it. It's like, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so, this famous person, right? Pick an actor or somebody, Brad Pitt, right? Well, I know Brad Pitt. Well, well do you? Right? Unless you actually know this person, you just know things about this person. You make an spout off all the movies they've been, anything else they've done, who they're married to or not married to anymore, 
right, fill in the blank, we know that most of us probably don't know said famous person. They just know about them, right? It's the same thing, right? A lot of people have head knowledge about God, right? We know we can spout off Bible verses, we can talk about God, but do you have a genuine relationship with God? Let me go as far and say this. It's not enough to know John 3.16 and spout it off, right? Yeah, we, we remember if you saw Tim, to- Tim Tebow playing college football, he would put it on his eye black, right, and people would go look it up. It's not enough to be able to recite that, but it is important to know what John 3.16 is saying, right? Right, this is what he says. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's what eternal life is about, right? Knowing personally Jesus Christ. Pastor uh, by name Matt Carter, he wrote this about eternal life. I thought this was great. He said eternal life is a relationship with the everlasting God, right? And it is that, right? He said relationship, so we need to remember that. Eternal life is forever delighting in the manifold glories of God. Eternal life is seeing God and rejoicing forever in his presence. Right? One day we will get to see him face to face. We will get to spend eternity with him. And he also said eternal life is living how we're created to live in fellowship with our creator. So this is key that we understand the difference between, oh, we'll get to spend eternity, but what is eternal life? Knowing Christ or knowing God in the one God sent. Look at verses 4 and 5 here. He says, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What is this work? What, What is he asked to do? Well, right, Jesus didn't just come for some random reason, right? He came for a particular reason. If you've noticed, John commentates a lot on, on the things that he talks about. And going back to John six thirty eight, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All right, so the next question is, well, what is the will of the Father? Well, Luke 19.10 actually gives us insight into that. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Right, and we know, yes, we just celebrated Easter last Sunday, and necessarily we didn't look at the crucifixion and resurrection passage, but we know that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ brings about salvation and redemption of sin. Right? We have to put our faith in that. But not only does it do that, it more importantly brings glory to God. At the end of the day, Jesus is all about bringing glory to the Father. So even here in this passage, he's saying, hey, I've accomplished the work that you've, you've given me. He is bringing glory to God. And look at that in the verse 5. He says this. He says, With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's kind of an interesting statement, right? Well, we need to go back to Jesus' birth, his incarnation, right? Jesus becoming human. We know that Jesus has always been, right? He's not a created being. John 1, 1-2 tells us that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? We know that we can simultaneously plug Jesus' name in there, and it's going to be the same thing. So Jesus did not become less divine when he became human. He, he's, always, he's always been, and he always will be, right? In John 1, 14, he continued and said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So what Jesus is getting at is, yes, he, he came in this humble state as a human. And you see other passages in the Bible, right? He says, oh, I could have called thousands of angels at my, my own command, and God would have brought them. But he chose not to. So this is what Jesus is asking for the Father to restore, the glory that he had had before the incarnation. So you're probably thinking, okay, what does this mean for us? How does this idea of Jesus glorifying, asking to be glorified so he can glory, glorify the Father mean for us? Think of it this way. And Matt Carter, the pastor I shared earlier, he, he had this to say. He said, it can mean nothing less than that the glory of God must be the top priority in your life. Everything you do should have as its purpose the worship of God. Every single detail of your life is intended to reveal and celebrate the goodness of God. The reason we live on mission is to share the gospel is so sorry, the reason we live on mission is to share the gospel so those blinded to God's goodness may see it and worship him. Our goal in sharing the gospel is not to enlist converts but to make worshipers. And that's how we can do that. We can bring honor and glory to God. So not only have we seen that Jesus has prayed for his glory to be revealed to glorify the Father, we now see the second way Jesus prays in verses 6 through 19. Jesus prays for the disciples to be protected and sanctified. Jesus prays for the disciples to be protected and sanctified. Follow along with me as we read verses 6 through 19. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I no longer, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you have kept them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world so that I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So we see here as he moves into kind of verses 6 and following, right? He, he starts off saying, hey, I've manifested your name. And we know that Jesus, when he came, he came and showed the Father to the disciples, right? He manifested the name of God to them, right? His presence allowed them to see the Father. His incarnation revealed God's nature and character. Listen to what John wrote in John fourteen nine. Jesus said to him, talking to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Listen to this. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
how can you say, show us the Father? So, so when Jesus came into this world, he came and was showing the Father to the disciples. And not only that, he says, I've kept your word. Well, what does this mean, right? Well, Jesus, the, the disciples knew that Jesus' words were from God, and they chose to be obedient to them. And they also believed that God sent Jesus to them. He says they know that, right, that, they, that Jesus came from God and that he had the words of eternal life. John six sixty eight. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 16, 30. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So these disciples had a moment in their time with Jesus that they realized that he was something more than just a normal teacher, a normal rabbi. Right? He was the Son of God, the one true Messiah. In verses 9 and 10, he continues his prayer for the disciples. He makes it clear here that he is not praying for the lost world. He is praying for his followers. Jesus is clearly saying that the disciples are God's possession and therefore are his also. Right? That, that even in this moment when they're, they're part of his family, that God the Father and the Son receive glory and honor because the disciples have chosen to believe in Jesus. Right? They've seen what he's done and they've chosen to believe in him. Verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world. And we know that Jesus is about to go get arrested. He's about to be betrayed by Judas and ultimately pay the price on the cross and then eventually ascend to the Father. He's reminding them, hey, you don't have that much time left with me. And he will return to the Father. So when Jesus leaves the disciples behind, he knows fully well the hostile world that they will face. right? And he look at it. Look at verse 11, it says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And this is the only time we ever see in Scripture this phrase used, Holy Father. And and so Jesus understands that the disciples are going to have to live a holy life in the midst of the world around them. And the only way they're going to be able to do that is through the power of God. They cannot do it on their own. So Jesus prays for God to keep them in his name so that they may be one as the Father and the Son are one. He desires their unity with one another. And of course, this unity is of all believers everywhere. Verse 12, he continues and says, He did what God called him to do by keeping the disciples in his name. Except for one thing. It says, Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Now, wait a minute. Don't think that Jesus failed in his mission with Judas. No, Judas for all along would never be a true disciple of Jesus. All right, because what does it say there? That the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 70 about Judas. He said, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil is a devil. When we think about this, this was all part of God's plan. That's what the scripture might be fulfilled means. So what scripture is Jesus talking about? Most scholars believe that it's Psalm 41.9, which says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And Jesus uses this in John chapter 13.18, which we looked at the last time, actually, I believe I, I preached 
And he says this, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Listen, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So from the very beginning of time, God knew that this was going to happen, that this was part of the plan of redemption that God had in store. And he, goes, he transitions in verse 13. He's kind of looking at the present now, is looking to the future, right? I'm, I am coming to you. He's focused on now coming back to the Father. And he's doing this, and he says this is interesting. I felt this was very interesting when I was reading this, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves, right? And logically, most people probably get pretty sad, and of course we know that the disciples do when Jesus departs, when he goes back to the Father. And we know that Jesus is about to face the most excruciating death we any of us can imagine, right? Going to the cross, being beaten by the cat of nine tails, and then ultimately being pierced through his hands and his feet upon a Roman cross. So this, of course, would bring sorrow for the disciples, and it did bring sorrow because they didn't, have, they didn't maybe fully understand what Jesus was doing. And we know that even Jesus knows, right, that his death, resurrection, and ascension would finally bring about God's plan of redemption. This hour has come. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, what it accomplished, the disciples could now find joy in the forgiveness of their sins, right, what they've been waiting for this whole time. And Jesus knew that the joy that he was experiencing is something that the disciples could finally find joy in. He said that in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Right? The disciples would remain behind. We know that through the, what we see in history, that most of them would be martyred for the faith. Right? But they were able to have joy even in this moment, even when Jesus would ascend to the Father. He would be restored to his full glory in heaven. And look at the last part of this in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Right? The, the disciples were in Christ, right? They were transferred out of the old world and into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. They were citizens of a different kingdom. And we know, we can see all throughout the gospel accounts, right, where the religious leaders of the day absolutely hated Jesus. Right? And very early on in their, in their discussions with Jesus, they, see, they sought a way to get rid of him. And Jesus said this in John 8, 23, talking about not being from this world. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus reminds them that he is not from this world. And as Christians, technically our home is no longer here. Right? We are strangers on this planet. Right? The world would hate the disciples as much as they would hate Jesus. Just like today, right? That Christians are, are hated often because they're not like the rest of the world. We live differently, or at least we're called to live differently than the world around us. But notice what Jesus doesn't do here in verse 15. He might logically think, hey, maybe let's get them out of here. Let's take them out of this suffering, this, this hostility that's coming. But no, Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to protect them from the evil one. Jesus knew the devil is intent on destroying God's work in his people. Remember what, what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
right? We know that the devil has ultimately been defeated because of the cross. The, the war is over, right? If you haven't read the end of this book, we win. We've already won, technically. Right? Although the devil has ultimately been defeated, we know that he has the power to wage war against the followers of Jesus Christ. But we have the good news that one day our faith will be made sight. Right? We will complete the race we are called to run. God will see it through. Right? He will hold us fast. As Jesus is not in this world any longer, right? the disciples are no longer of this world. Right? They do remain, but we know that Jesus has redeemed them from the evil world around them. And that gives us hope. And look at verses 17 through 19 here. These are some beautiful words that Jesus says. He says, sanctify them in your truth, or in the truth. Your word is truth. Right? Jesus asked the Father to protect the disciples and to sanctify them in the truth. He asked them to be set apart. That's what sanctify means. We, we do need to take a second here and explain two different terms, right? This idea of justification and sanctification. I want to make sure we understand that based off this word here, sanctify, right? So justification is in that moment, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that God has declared you righteous before him, right? He sees the blood of Jesus Christ on your life and says, hey, you are holy. So that's a one-time moment, that moment you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It doesn't happen again, one, one and done, okay? Sanctification, though, is, you, can, you may have heard it progressive, right? It is a progressive thing. So the longer and longer you are a Christian, the more and more work, the more and more Jesus, or God is making you more like his son, Jesus. Right? For some of you, you may have struggled with something when you came to know Christ, and maybe God delivered, to, delivered you from it immediately. But perhaps not, right? It's been a process, a journey of growth in your walk with Christ. And that's important. We need to make sure we understand that. Sanctification is an ongoing process. If you're not feeling convicted of sin, that's an issue, right? Because that perhaps either you're totally ignoring that or you are not truly a, a Christian. So we need to make sure that we understand that, right? This is what God is, or Jesus is praying to God and saying, hey, sanctify them in the truth. And what does he say is truth? Your word. Your word is truth. We're not talking about just the New Testament. We're not talking about just the Old Testament. We're talking about the entire word of God. Everything from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22 is true. Okay? Yes, even the parts in Deuteronomy and Second Chronicles and all those, right? Those are important, right? Don't overlook those. They're somehow are important, right, to our sanctification as we know God's word. Look at verse 18. He says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus was about to write, go to the cross, and then he would later on, 40 days later, send back to the Father. But he had a mission for them. He, he was going to send them into the world to help in the, the process of seeking and saving those who were lost. And look at verse 19. Another interesting phrase here. He says, And for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. That's kind of an unusual statement. Like, well, what, what does Jesus have to do to sanctify or consecrate himself, to set himself apart, essentially? Well, what we get here is that Jesus was being obedient to God's will, right? We've already discussed that. But he's also submitting himself to the will of the Father to actually go to the cross. Right? We see that in the next chapter, right? Not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. He knew what it was going to cost him. He knew the pain and the suffering. You know what the worst part about the cross is? I'm not going to burst the bubble of, 
of the passage next, but it wasn't just the actual physical pain. It was being forsaken by God on the cross, right? Because of all the sin that was upon Jesus and the full wrath of God upon Jesus on the cross. Everyone look at me for a second. Realize that if you are, the, the, the worst thing that could ever happen to us is being totally forsaken by God. And if you are in Christ, you will never have to understand that. That is only the lost person, right? Jesus underwent the full, complete, 100% wrath of God. We will never, ever, ever have to face that. So praise be to God that we never have to face the full wrath of God. You don't want to face it. I don't want to face it. None of us wants to face it. But that's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He knew what he was about to enter. He said, Lord, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. So we see here, right, that only by the shedding of the innocent blood of Jesus that anyone may be sanctified. Hebrews 10.10 shows us that. And by by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Right? It's not the countless, countless lambs and goats and things that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. It was the one-time sacrifice by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So this is where we see Jesus is going towards, right, in, in these next few chapters. And then we finally see in the last part of this chapter a third way that Jesus prays. He prays, Jesus prays for all believers to be united in their witness to the world. That Jesus prays for all believers to be united in their witness to the world. Follow along with me as we read these last several verses. In John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And remember, Jesus is praying this in front of the disciples. This isn't just some prayer that's recorded privately, but he, he's praying this in front of them. So we've already seen kind of in the verse 5 verses, right, he's kind of praying for himself. He's setting, uh, making sure that his glory will reflect the, and back to the glory of the Father. In verses 6 through 19, he's praying for the disciples, and now we kind of see this transition where Jesus is praying for all who will believe him, all believers, all time. So we see here, right, that, he, again, he, he's asking them that he's going to send them out on this task, right? They were given the task, these, those who believe, including us as followers of Jesus Christ. Right? We're called to fulfill the Great Commission. We're called to be obedient to the Great Commandment. Right? The disciples were given to, 
this task to share the gospel with the world, to not keep it to themselves, right? Seems pretty self-explanatory. They were to be a witness to the world so that others could come and believe in Jesus, right? We've been hitting it all throughout this sermon series, the purpose of the gospel of John. A reminder of it, John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what G- John is all about in this book, making sure that the, the writer, the people he wrote it to in the, the original audience understands that it's about eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And look what he says. You, we see, we've heard the word numerous times, this idea of one. Right? Jesus then prays for them to be one, just like as the Father and he are one. They, they're in that, that unity. Right? And then again, he says that they may all be one. Right? He's talking about being unified in the body of Christ, being united with the church. Right? It's not about all the small, minor things. It's, of course, certainly about the major things, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 4, and 6. Listen, you'll, you'll, you'll notice the theme. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice that theme, right? God is saying it's about being one, being united in the body of Christ. And look at what he says here in verse 12, 21. He says, not only it's about being one and being in us, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Hmm, it sounds like verse 3, right? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's again going back to John chapter 20, verse 31, that they may believe and have life in his name. And a reminder, we've already kind of hit this, right? It's not just about having a head knowledge. It's about putting your, play, your personal relationship in Jesus' Jesus, right? So we see that. It's to entrust ourselves totally, fully devote ourselves in complete confidence to someone. So the question I have for you this morning is, have you truly believed in Jesus Christ? Let me say this. It is not enough for us to have come to church this morning. That's not going to save you. I'm glad you're here, right? But at the end of the day, it's not about coming to church. It's not about being a member of a church. We're glad. We want people to be members of this church. We want people to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. It's not enough to do good things. It's not enough to do anything. There are a lot of good people who will be, they have wound up and found themselves apart from the presence of God in a literal place called hell. There's a lot of good people in hell. It's have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you believed in this good news, the eternal life? John 17 and verse 8, we've already read it, but a reminder, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you've sent me. As we kind of follow these last few verses, we see in verses 22 and 23, right, he goes back to this idea of the glory that he's been given, right? He is the gift of glory. God gave this gift so that they may be one, the disciples, And he's continued to hit on the theme of being unified for the mission that God has given him, but also the disciples, right? And that's where the unity of the church is so key. It is so key that we must understand that, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are united in their relationship. They are one. And he even says that in this verse. He says that they 
that they may become perfectly one. What does that mean? Wait a minute, we've got to be sinless, spotless? No. This is this idea that Christ indwells a believer when you put your faith in him. And he brings about eventually the complete oneness that we will see in heaven. Right? And this is a unity that only comes from God. And unity is essential in the church. It's going to help, of course, bring witness to the world. So when a church is in dysfunction, that actually hurts the gospel. Not because the gospel is hurt, but the people that are seeing the church, they don't want to have to do anything with the church. So we know that we're called to love God, love people, share Jesus, and make disciples. And we know that, as John 13, 35 said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In verses 24 and following, we see that once again, he, he prays to the Father and says, may they, may they be with me where I am. Right? He's again waiting for that day that they, their faith will be made sight, believers everywhere. Right, That wonderful day when we will be in heaven. And guys, on that day, that is when we will finally see Jesus in his full glory, who, who he truly is. The glory that God gave him before the foundation of the world, as it says earlier. Matthew 25, 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Right? Jesus longs for the day where his bride will be with him forever. Guys, hopefully you remember that day on your wedding day, right? The anticipation that came with that day, right? When it, hopefully you know your anniversary. If you don't, make sure you know that. But remember that, okay? For me, March 4th, right? I actually got more choked up at the rehearsal than I did at the day she walked down the aisle. But you know that anticipation, right? When you were waiting, you were thinking, oh, man, what is my bride going to look like in her dress, right? Walking down the aisle towards you, right? The anticipation in that moment, you finally saw her. That's exactly what we're talking about. One day, the bride of Christ will fully be with him, right? We live in anticipation of seeing God in all his splendor, all his glory, all of what we saw in Revelation chapter 4. John or First John 3, 9 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Right? That's what we're going towards. Right? For us, that particular hour has not come. As we wrap up 25 and 26, it's clear that Jesus is not, that the world does not know the Father that they have chosen to reject the one true God by not repenting of their sins and turning to Jesus for redemption. Right? They, they don't know him. They've chosen to be blinded to the fact that this is who he is. Remember that Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And so this, is, this doesn't stop when Jesus goes to the Father. No, he gives the disciples the mission to go and share the good news. Right? And again, he wants to make sure that they understand that God loves them. Right? The love of which you have loved me. God has bestowed his love on all believers. Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Notice that doesn't say when we got it, got ourselves fixed, that we got it right, we figured it out. It says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his love for us. And we know that the love of God will never end. It began with Jesus' death on the cross. It bestowed on believers in repentance and will we fully realize one day when we get to go home to the Father. So my question, your question may be, what do we do with this particular passage? It's kind of a heavy passage in ways. I believe there are several ways we can apply this to our life. And remember, this passage is to believers. He, he's really praying before the disciples, praying to God the Father. Well, first, I think we need to live a life that brings glory to God in everything. It's easier said than done, I know. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 tells us, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Secondly, I believe we need to pray for protection from the evil one, just like Jesus prayed. Right? We know that we live in a hostile world, and it's getting hostile, more hostile by the second. Right? Put on the armor of God found in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. It's there for a reason. Pray that. Try to make that a daily habit. Right? It, whatever there's something tempting, uh, temptations that you struggle with, memorize and pray Scripture in those times. That's one way we can be protected from the evil one. Right? Going to the word that will be sanctified in truth. Third, we need to trust God in the process of sanctification. It's not always easy, right, to be confronted with our sin, but make sure we ask God to convict us of our sin daily. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper here in a few moments, that we take time intentionally as a church to pause and make sure that there's no unconfessed sin in your heart. It's dangerous. Scripturally, it's dangerous. It's not just something we as pillar church say, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good thing, you should do that. No, it's, it's God's word. Confess and repent from your sin. And, of course, put off the old life and put on the new life. We also need to be unified in sharing the gospel. No, there is no gift of evangelism in the Bible. There is an evangelist, but every person has the ability and the power to be doing evangelism, right? So ask God to give you a heart to evangelism. I know it's not easy. Look for opportunities to share the gospel and live in harmony with other believers. And I think lastly, how we as believers can apply this is we need to look to heaven. I think we, myself included, don't do this as enough, that we look to the end. We're so focused on the present. Pray for the Lord's return. I know that one of the pastors that we used to be with back in South Carolina, he always, every time there was some tragic shooting or anything like that, he would, he would always say that, Lord, please come back. And we need to be looking in that day, long for the day when Jesus comes back, right? Remember what we read in Revelation 4, the beauty and the glory and the honor of Jesus. But for those of you who are not believers, you also have a response to this. You heard what eternal life is, right? To know God, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. You need to respond by giving your life to Christ. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about having a relationship with the one true God. Repent of your sins and let Jesus' blood cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You need to enter into a personal relationship with God. Pray with me.